0: Welcome to the Blind Apex Podcast, where amateur club racers tune in to get faster. I'm your host, Conjon Turk, and on this episode of the Blind Apex Podcast, I will readily admit I'm over my head. We're talking thermodynamics and racing. Joining me, Proud Father, another husband batting out of his league. Pizza artist, venison jerky aficionado, lover of things four wheels and two, super nerd. Reporting from the lab in his basement, Mark Birdie. Welcome to the show, man.
1: Hey, nice to uh, see you again. Haven't seen you in a while, and and glad glad to be on here and uh, I guess nerd out, but hopefully combine two passions here.
0: Yes, hopefully so. we can nerd out because um, I didn't go to a really good school. I mean. It wasn't a... Jamie was pretty good. It was good then, I guess. <laughs> but I didn't study the same things you studied, let's say. So I don't... Uh, Fair enough. Yeah. This is not <laughs> my forte for sure. So I appreciate you coming on uh, and sharing your wisdom and knowledge on all of this. Cool. So... Mark, let's get a little bit of your two wheel, four wheel passion background, and then a little bit of your education. So people understand sure. where you're coming from.
1: Sure. So, um, been always into motorsports. um, grew up. My dad did, did a lot of, uh, sand car stuff. So out in the sand dunes, um, so grew up doing that. Those are mainly like, you know, old VW based, but two, you know, two frame kind of stuff. Um, then uh, post college, started getting into um, like high, like HBT high performance driving, HPD, whatever, high performance driving right. school, um, like uh, mainly with uh, BMW CCA. Um, did for a bunch of years there. Um, so 30, 40 track days there. Um, did uh, at the time was running uh, a BMW m 3 then an Audi S4, then um Mitsubishi Eclipse GSX that I did a bunch of stuff to and then blew up. Um, they all
0: do. So They all
1: blow up. As they all do, but they, they they're phenomenal. I would still have that car. It sounds like a tie fighter on meth. <laughs> um so um so did that uh then started getting into bike stuff. Um started riding 2000. So I'm, I'm 46. Um so started riding in 2000. Um moved down here to DC in 2004, Met Conn in 2006. Somewhere. Um,
0: in Motorcycles, yeah, coffee, that's a long time ago, hooligan yes. nights, all those things.
1: 17 years ago. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Then along there, did a bunch of motorcycle track days, raced with CCS for a bit. Um, so did a bunch of two wheel stuff there. Um, ride. I haven't ridden in four years. Um, current four wheel, like fun car is a Nissan GTR. Um, current bikes include a Ducati, new, new Honda, GTR, about like a 34, 33, right? Like I'm, I'm waiting for the day I can get a 34. Okay. So that's, I think is three years. They click over into show and display. So I'm eagerly awaiting the time when I can get one of those. Um, yeah, so um, when I do, for like the G, for the DSM for the, the Eclipse, I did a lot of my own work on that, so motor and everything like that. Um, did a lot of thermal management on it because they tend to explode. So this is a lot of lot of heat management on there, um, which was always fun. Uh, so worked on my own stuff most of the time. I have a pretty nice shop uh, to do that kind of stuff. Um, and I guess educationally, uh, so I went to MIT. Um, undergrad and grad school. So have degrees in aerospace engineering, nuclear engineering, a couple of degrees in nuclear engineering. Worked on nuclear reactors, fusion stuff, spaceships, all across the board. Um, got to work for a lot of cool places like Los Alamos, working on nuclear things that I can't talk about. Um, worked for a variety of other government places doing a lot of stuff I can't talk about. Um, But uh, mainly, like, got to work on a lot of, like, lasers and spaceships and sensors and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, And kind of took a lot of that and applied it to hobbies uh, in the past. So I've um, taught a few classes here and there, including um, I did a seminar at WPI up in Massachusetts on technology and motorsports. So this is talking about this stuff is, is old hat. So, um, and fun to, fun to do Good, that. Cause you're going
0: to have to help me get through this because I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so well, then there we're go. talking thermodynamics. So can you give us, um, uh, ladies yeah. like so, basics?
1: Yeah. Thermodynamics is one of those things where everyone always thinks of it as hard because, but it's, not. We all use it and we all do stuff with it without kind of even knowing. It's only when you try and throw a lot of terminology and everything into it that it gets hard. Like there's, you know, four laws of thermodynamics: zero, one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll go through all the ones that they mean. There's a zero because they started with one, two, and three, and then we're like, oh, cool. Uh, except we didn't define something, so we have to go back and rather than renumber everything, they just kind of added a zero. Okay. So. Um, but they're all things where they can make them both really hard, really complex, or actually really easy. So if you start with zero, the zero law of thermodynamics is there exists a thing called temperature. Okay? So it's pretty easy. Like, we can get that one. Basically, what that means is there's such a thing as hot and cold. Okay? Um, the most important thing there is if two things are the same temperature, then they're in equilibrium with each other. Okay. OK, so basically everything in the universe is trying to, like, become in equilibrium with other things. OK, like and which gets us on to like the first law of thermodynamics, which is conservation of energy. Basically, like the total amount of energy that exists stays the same. OK, it just changes forms like from electricity into heat in a heater or from chemical energy and gasoline into mechanical energy in an engine, et cetera, et cetera. So basically the zero law is there exists a thing called temperature. Okay. The first law is basically there exists a thing called energy and it can't be created or destroyed. It just can change forms from one thing to another. So if you look at it, like, you know, putting it in like a car engine kind of context, you know, temperature is an obvious one. Like I said, they, what they did is they would to one, two and three. And we're like, oh crap, we didn't define temperature. Uh, zero law. there's, there's temperature. Okay. So if you think about it from a car perspective, like you have chemical energy and gasoline. So it's just there now, technically speaking, that energy came from, you know, sunlight landed on the planet, plants turned the sunlight into chemical energy, you know, animals ate that, died, turned into oil, etc. You know, that kind of whole process. Yeah. So it went from, you know, light energy and sunlight to chemical energy in plants and animals, eventually turning into more concentrated into, you know, oil turned into gasoline. Um but then when you burn it in a car engine, you're turning the chemical energy into mechanical energy, you know, spinny stuff. <clears throat> Uh, and heat energy, uh, and that heat is both in the exhaust gases as well as into the cylinder walls and then into the cooling system of the car. <clears throat> and this brings us on to the second law of thermodynamics, which is that the technical thing is entropy of an isolated system always increases. That's a really hard way of saying that, like, heat flows. Okay. and The first law, basically, like, heat flows from one place to another. and second law, heat always flows from hot to cold. OK, um, in effect, what that means is like entropy, as you can think of as disorder. But in a second law case, basically, <clears throat> your, the, heat, the energy will always move in a direction that increases the disorder of the system. Basically, it makes the energy less good. Like if you think about it, um, the hotter something is, the more useful stuff you can do with it. Okay. Okay. And the colder something is, the less useful stuff you can do with it. Like there's more energy in the system and it's at a higher state. A good way to look at this is um, uh, an electric heater. Okay. Electricity is a very kind of, you can think of it as like a very ordered state of energy. You can turn it into other things very efficiently, but going the other way is harder. Like I can make electricity into heat just a heater at effectively hundred percent efficiency. Like the energy just turns into heat. That's where kind of it all wants to go. But turning heat into electricity is much harder. Like you need an engine or, you know, things of that mm-hmm. nature. And the third law is basically the entropy always increases uh, in the universe um, until everything kind of gets as cold as it possibly can go. So that's kind of the, the nerd form of like, here are all the, you know, the different laws of thermodynamics and everything. But what it really all boils down to is, there's a joke that says like, you know, when it comes to thermodynamics, you can't win. You can't even break even. It'll always get worse. Okay. So in effect, like you're always, whenever you turn one form of energy into another, you're always losing something along the way. Okay. Okay? Um, And typically that's referred to as entropy, which is basically just disorder. Um, Another way to look at this is, let's say you have a container that you divide in two. So you have two sides of a a box and you have a wall down the middle. If you have a bunch of gas or liquid on one side of that wall and nothing on the other side, that system has order. The liquid's on one side, nothing is on the other. If you pull that wall out, the liquid or gas will flow from one side to the other and eventually equilibrate in both places. Now, if you think about it, there's now more disorder. It's more averaged out. There isn't high concentration and low concentration. It's just smeared out. That's what ends up happening is you can also extract energy from that process. So this is how like, you know, hydroelectric dams work. The water is up high. You let the water down low. Eventually, the water would reach the same level. But in that process, you can extract energy out. Mm -hmm. of it. So that's how... Everything works. We're basically turning energy from one form to the other. Typically, when it comes to like, you know, heat engines or cars, which are effectively heat engines, you're burning something to make stuff hot, and then you're taking that hotter thing, extracting energy out of it so that on average, it becomes cooler and is now mixing with the outside world. So look at it at a car engine. I take gasoline, a very high concentration form of chemical energy. Mm -hmm. I burn it with air inside the cylinder at high pressure and temperature. So, you know, I top top head center, ignite the fuel. Now I have really hot, high pressure gas, exhaust gases. And that pushes down on the piston, thereby expanding lower pressure, cooling down. It's cooling off. And then the exhaust valve opens. So I've now extracted energy out of it. Now the exhaust valve opens. That exhaust blows out the exhaust pipe, eventually mixing with the outside air. And it all becomes room temperature. Mm -hmm. So I've gone from highly concentrated chemical energy to high pressure, high temperature gas. Then I'm having that gas coming into coming into equilibrium with the universe as a whole by expanding. I'm extracting energy out of it in my in my engine and then expanding further out the exhaust pipe and into the atmosphere, eventually reaching the same temperature and pressure as the outside world. So it's kind of. Coming into equilibrium with everything is the process that, and then I'm extracting energy out of it along the way. If I just take that gasoline and burn it on a dish, the same thing happens. The chemical energy becomes heat and high pressure gas that then expands out in the atmosphere. But I haven't extracted any useful work out of it. Right. So like if you hear like engineers or scientists say work, what they mean is literally work being done. It's pushing down on a piston. It's turning a thing like it's you're doing useful work. And that's where the energy is coming from. Interesting anecdote. That's a fun way to look at this, of how everything goes into equilibrium is we're going to talk about, like, I'm going to extend this into like a 32nd digression. Go for it. When you look at a nuclear bomb going off. <laughs> okay. okay. So like, you know, you know, three times, you know, twice in anger, once in test, a lot of the times in test. If you could freeze time at the instant the nuclear bomb is done doing its nuclear bomb thing, but like, so all the nuclear stuff has all happened, and you froze time and looked at it, it would look exactly the same as when it started. Like the bomb hasn't come apart yet. All it is now is basically like a couple tens of pounds, hundreds of pounds thing, the size of a basketball. That's 150 million degrees. OK, it's just a ball of stuff yeah. that's 150 million degrees. The whole explosion process is just that ball of hot stuff cooling down and coming into equilibrium with okay. the rest of the world. Okay. It's expanding, it's cooling, it's radiating energy. All the exploding part is just a ball of stuff the size of a basketball that's 150 million degrees cooling down. So. Now, theoretically, you could get useful work out of that. Like, you could have the world's most ginormous piston and use it driven by a nuclear bomb. But, you know, it's a lot easier to do it much slower, like in a reactor kind of thing. So, anyway, interesting digression. So, is that kind of a good start to why this matters? Yeah, I
0: think so. Um, Specifically with creating that – well, not creating, but the use of the energy – in how we typically see it, right? So we're, we are making that car with a, the gas goes, piston runs, car goes forward. Um, we have to do things like, uh, try to balance that engine working over time. So we have the radiator system, we have v- oh, ventilating yeah. systems, things like that. And then down the road and I, and I, we can work on it we can work out the oh. whole progression, but even your braking system is part of, has thermodynamic properties where you're actually like yep. slowing down the energy goes that's into, going yeah. forward. So. so
1: so that's a good way to look at it. So let's look at your typical internal combustion engine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Most internal combustion engines nowadays are between on a low end, about 20% and on a high end, about 30, 35% efficiency. Okay. So what that means is of the chemical energy that's in the fuel, gasoline, diesel, whatever, um, only about 20 to 30 plus percent of it gets turned into the mechanical power of the engine. Okay. Um, Typically on most engines, about 15 to 20 percent of it turns into heat that's transported into the engine mass itself. So this is why you have a cooling system, whether air cooled or water cooled. Um, so that's because you have hot gas in the cylinder, it's touching stuff. Okay. And the heat is flowing from that really hot gas into the walls of the head, into the, well, you know, the cylinder head or into the walls of the cylinder or into the piston and all those things get hot. So in order to keep it now, exhaust gas was very much hot enough to melt an engine. Um, like if you make a gasoline torch, you can melt aluminum and steel with it. So it'll melt the engine if you don't get that rid of that heat um so you'll have either air cooled or water cooled um a lot of times like the reason why water cooled can typically yield higher power for a given amount of engine size is water's a lot better at carrying away heat than air um you can think of this a really good way to think about this is you know solids are typically best at carrying away Mm -hmm. heat unless they're flowing um liquids are next best gases are the worst way to look at this is like you can take air out of a hair dryer, which uh, will be several hundred degrees Fahrenheit, and put your hand in front of it, and it won't burn you. Like the amount of heat transfer from the air to your hand is relatively low, even though the air is, can be very hot. Um, you can open up an oven and hold your hand in an oven, and there's you know two, three hundred degrees, and it probably won't burn you. Don't do it that. Yeah, but, don't. You know, we're probably, not recommending. Okay. That. We're not recommending that. But like a, the air coming out of a hair dryer can be extremely right. hot. Okay. Now, if you take, but if you take even 160, 170 degree water, like out of a coffee maker, it will burn you. It will burn the hell okay. out of you. Okay. And it's because the water not only contains more energy per unit amount of stuff, but it can transfer that energy into you much faster. Okay. Uh, another good way of looking at this. And so this is like the concept of insulation. Like, you know, if you get out of the shower and you stand on tile floor, the floor feels really mm. cold. If you stand on a rug. It doesn't feel cold. They're both the rug and the floor are the exact same temperature. Mm-hmm. It's just that your body, you feel like you don't feel something being cold. You feel heat leaving you and going into it. And the, since the rug is insulating from a thermal perspective, the heat can't leave your body as fast. So even though the rug and the floor are the same temperature, mm-hmm. one will feel colder. Okay. So this is where stuff actually gets kind of counterintuitive in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to, like, cooling cars. Uh, but before we get down that path, um, the other 50%, 50 60% of the heat that is in that, the energy that's in the uh, initial, like, fuel goes out the tailpipe, mm-hmm. okay? So this is just hot gas. Like, the exhaust coming out of the car is extremely hot, and it's actually at higher pressure. Otherwise, it wouldn't flow out the exhaust pipe. So this is why turbos are a unique thing. In effect, what a turbocharger is doing is capturing some of the energy that would normally be lost in the exhaust and putting it back into the engine in the form of more compressed intake air. Okay. okay. Now this can be done to an extremely high degree of efficiency. A good example of which is the you can think so, a turbo in a turbocharger, you have you know a turbine and a compressor, and the exhaust is spinning, putting Forcing the turbine to spin, and which spins the compressor and forces air into the into the engine. Back in the turbo era of Formula One, back in like the 1980s, -hmm. the amount of horsepower in the shaft of the turbo. So think of like the amount of energy being turned from exhaust gas energy into compressed intake charge. Was 800 to 1,000 horsepower of the 1,200 to 1,400 horsepower of the car. In effect, the engine part was effectively the power turbine and the vast majority of the like power was being generated in the turbo interestingly yeah. enough. <laughs> so like um so all that energy would normally have been wasted okay effectively they were using the engine as kind of like a power turbine and gas generator would be the gas turbine equivalent of it um now and but those were horrifyingly crazy and but you can think of this as like look at like modern cars like if you're doing drag racing or anything like that you can take a normally aspirated car and get three to four times the horsepower out of it via turbocharging right like there are two liter hondas out there that are drag racing that you know it's a 250 horsepower stock engine Mm -hmm. that's making 1200 horsepower on a drag Mm -hmm. strip turbocharging now that energy is coming from somewhere you know, and in effect, like a lot of it is <laughs> a lot of it is like through the turbocharger. Um, so this is why like thermal management in a car is so important is the more energy that you can get into the mechanical side instead of in the heat, whether it be heat in the cooling system or heat uh, going out the exhaust or trying to recover that with the turbo, for instance. The more efficient the car can be, but also the more power you can get out of a given amount of fuel okay. and more importantly, a given amount of air. Okay. So the vast majority of internal combustion engines are air limited, not fuel limited. True. As in, it's getting air into the engine that is determining how much fuel you can burn. Correct. Okay. You can't just keep throwing fuel into it and it'll keep, you know, you'll just get increasingly rich and crappy. <laughs> like, so... That's why everything is about whether, you know, intake performance, putting an intake on a car, improving exhaust performance. It's all about just getting more air into the engine and then adding the necessary fuel in order to, to take advantage of that. But. So. Right. <clears throat> um, the air density
0: though, does that, how much does that play into it? I mean. A lot. Okay.
1: I mean, it's total amount of mass of air that you're putting okay. in. Okay. Um, so this is why, like, you know, if you've ever looked at you'll have like an air mass sensor. The engine doesn't care what temperature, really, for the most part, it does a little bit. But to first order, the engine doesn't care what temperature the air is going in or what pressure it is. All it cares is, you know, how many pounds per minute of air is going into the okay. engine. And then you're burning that with a given amount of fuel. Right. So air fuel ratio is always done in mass. So it's, you know, pounds of air per pound of gasoline. Um, In terms of air fuel ratio. And so like if you have an air fuel meter or exhaust gas sensor, you can do these kinds of things or try and get like the right ratio Mm -hmm. of air to fuel. Um, So a lot of cars will have mass air sensors to actually directly measure the amount of air going into the car. Others will have volumetric flow sensors and they have to use temperature and volumetric flow and pressure in order to back out how much mass there is. And then given that amount of mass, you squirt in the right amount of fuel. So Um, so like air pressure does matter. Mm -hmm. Um, and in just in terms of getting the air in. So a really good example of that is, um, Pike's peak before it was dominated by electric cars, (laughs) Uh, basically. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's a good example for that is so at Pike's peak, there's close to a mile of elevation change Mm -hmm. through the course of the race. Um, so, and at the top, the air pressure is I think like 70% of what it is at the bottom um, 60, uh, 70 or 80%, meaning you're getting for the same amount of volume going in, you're only getting 70, 80% of the air. So you're making, there's less air for you to right. burn. So this is why right. with turbocharged cars, if you're a turbo, um, like your wastegate and your control on the turbo is based on absolute pressure. Okay. So you're trying to put a constant amount of, pressure into the engine regardless of what it started with so turbocharged cars will tend to do very well at pike's peak because at the bottom of the mountain they're putting the same amount of air into the engine as at the top of the mountain the turbo is having to work harder because it has to compress more low pressure air but the the air going into the engine same pressure top and bottom electric car doesn't have to worry about that because the air part is gone but um but we'll we'll stick with internal combustion for now um So yeah, great question that the, the, the air pressure matters. Um, so one of the things that's really important about that and how this kind of relates to like the thermal part of it is not only do you want to get the heat out of the engine, you want to use as much of that heat as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the key aspects of this is like, in order to get the air in, you also have to get the exhaust out. Okay. So here's like, you know, kind of a, a good question, like, is the only, be- like, people, you'll see people that'll, like, do exhaust wrap mm-hmm. on engines, like, on the exhaust. The, one of the reasons for that is to keep your engine bay cooler, is a, an obvious thing. And there's certain reasons for doing that, okay? But the other reason is actually to retain heat in the exhaust itself. Because that the heat and energy in the exhaust is what's pushing it out the back end of the car. Okay. Like, it has to expand out the exhaust. So the more heat you can keep in the exhaust, the faster the exhaust will leave, meaning the less exhaust back pressure there will be, and the more air you can put in the front of the engine and make more power. So there's multiple reasons for doing those kinds of things. Um, But, you know, keeping exhaust energy in the exhaust and not in everything else is generally helps from a volumetric flow perspective. Okay.
0: Yeah, I was was actually going to ask about that because I have a... Let's say my engine bay retains too much heat, right? I've already wrapped my header. I want it to shoot out the gas as much as possible. My engine's loves air, more air. I, they all do, but this one really loves air. So, um yeah. we have to choke it out. We have to take timing out of it to keep me, you know, legal for the class, but um when I come off the track, my intake manifold in the front, which is inches two inches from my radiator you cannot touch it it will scald your hand now that's not yeah good. so this is a, a this is okay. a nut i'm trying um, to crack this winter
1: so yeah okay um yeah there's So that's one of the things is like how, like there's a variety of different ways to manage heat. And this goes at any level of motorsports. This is actually one of the big bugaboos for just design of cars in general. Um, And even manufacturers with tons of effort into this screw up. Mm -hmm. Okay. A perfect example of this is the B5 Audi S4. Okay. So this is the 2000 through 2003 or four. It was the first, it was S4, the 2.7 liter twin turbo S4. I had one. I think eight turbos for breakfast. Didn't matter. Bus stock, chip, didn't matter. I actually took Audi to court on it. Um, but long story for another day. Um, but, uh, um, and one of the reasons why is they put the turbos between the engine and the firewall. Mm-hmm. Okay. And turbochargers love to just cook oil and then fry bearings if they run too hot. Right. Okay. So the obvious place you'd want to put something that's really temperature sensitive is sandwich between the hot engine, the firewall, and have it it run exhaust through it. So it can't possibly ever be cold. So that's what they did. And it fried turbos left and right. The really fun part was that same motor was used in the Audi Allroad, Mm -hmm. which at the time um, was based on the A8 chassis, so much bigger. And so thus, instead of... The turbos being right between the engine bay and the firewall, there was like three, four inches of room all around them, and those things never fried turbos. Didn't matter if you chipped them or not. Like, and it was so it was all about heat management in it. Um, so manufacturers put a lot of effort into trying to get heat out of the engine bay so you just don't cook components. Remember that a lot of the electronic components are in there as Mm -hmm. well, and electronics tend to not like being baked continuously. They're pretty sensitive Um, to
0: that stuff over time.
1: Yeah. Um. Oh yeah. Uh so there's a lot of work that has to be done on that. Um even to the extent where if you look at like thermal management all the way up to like Formula 1 where there um, they're very limited. Like for instance, uh, formula one cars don't like to stand still. They're like sharks, mm-hmm. um, because since they're not allowed radiator fans, because people in the past made really big radiator fans that also functioned as downforce generators. <laughs> so you're not allowed to have fans on a formula one car because people in the past turned those into suction cars and therefore no radiator fans. Um, so, uh, if you basically like, you can't make power and not be moving, like they will destroy themselves very, very fast. um, so there's a lot of effort getting put into, into heat management. Mm-hmm. Basically, you want the heat in the, in the gas and not anywhere else, okay? Um, and people go to extreme lengths on this, um, like even to, like, doing weird combustion chamber coatings or, like, you'll see, like, the people will do, like, PBD coatings on top of pistons and stuff like that just to keep heat in the exhaust. Mm-hmm. Now, those things help. Um, basically anything you can do to keep the heat in the, the gas flow and not in the motor, um, will help. Um, the intake manifold thing is weird. Um, what's to what was done before, like your version of the car, like, and I think Con and I were talking about this before the podcast was like back in the B series motors, the engine was the other way and the exhaust manifold was in the front of the engine right behind the radiator and the intake was Mm -hmm. in the back. Now that still allowed a lot of heat soak into the intake. And almost every front wheel driver, transverse engine, all-wheel drive car at the time ran that configuration. And since then they kind of a lot of them went the other way. Um, one of the advantages of that was if you look down through the engine bay, there's a big gaping hole under the exhaust manifold underneath the car. So any airflow going through the radiator goes through the radiator. There gets a little bit warmer, but not that bad, and then blows right over the exhaust manifold and out the bottom of the car. Okay, so while the the intake manifold would get a bunch of heat, it wouldn't get that much Mm -hmm. heat. Okay, now the radiator can be quite hot. So like while the intake manifold, you don't want to be, it will never be as hot as the exhaust manifold. It'll still be the heat, the temperature of the air coming out of the radiator. It's still Mm -hmm. hot. Okay, I mean, think about your your, your radiator temperature is 220, 240 degrees Fahrenheit. Like it'll burn you. Like, and you definitely don't want your intake manifold being that hot. So, how do you get the heat out of like where it belongs and not where it doesn't belong in the car um and uh and we can get into this a kind of a whatever degree of kind of uh we want um but do we want to go down that path or do you want to do more on kind of how heat flows around things and what you want to do on that? Or do you want to just kind of riff down the like specific,
0: Let, let's go down the specific example. Cause I'm selfish and then we'll see what we can do otherwise.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, okay. So the, the reason why in this case, why you're manifold is probably is hot. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, it's right behind the radiator. The radiator's hot, especially after a oh. session. Um there while well, you think about it, like say you got a cold air intake, which I yes. hope. Um, so you're sucking in nice cold out. but if you think about it, the amount of air that's going through your engine is small compared to the amount of air going through the radiator. Right. Okay. And the way you can think about this as a good example is the air that goes into your engine goes in, you know, ambient temperature and comes out at a thousand degrees. The air that goes into the radiator goes in at ambient temperature and comes out at 250 degrees. Okay. Remember how I said that the amount of energy in the exhaust is about the same as the amount of energy going into the cooling system as well as into the actual engine. Okay. So the same amount of air, like if you take five pounds of air and put the same amount of energy into it, it'll go up some amount of temperature. If you put twice as much energy in the rate change in temperature will be twice as much. So the air that say it's a hundred degree day, nice, warm, humid Virginia day, and like the air goes into the radiator at hundred degrees and comes out at 200. Okay. So a hundred degree increase. The air that goes into the engine goes in at 100 degrees and comes out at 1,000 degrees, 900 degree Mm -hmm. difference. Now, that exhaust gas only contains twice as much energy as the air going through the radiator picked up, okay? So, but the air doesn't go into, so you would need basically four and a half times as much air going through the radiator than going through the engine, okay, Okay? from an airflow, just mass perspective. Okay, so what that means is your intake manifold is basically getting blasted with four and a half times as much hot air from the outside as the amount of cold air going through the inside. Okay. So there, the heat flow is into the intake manifold from the radiator air surrounding it. Because if you look in the engine bay, it's basically radiator intake manifold, intake manifold, yeah. um, which is you know nowadays either like peak like a peak plastic or a lot of times or, or like aluminum. What yeah, it's gonna so. be. yeah. Cool. Um, well, good and bad. Uh, it actually probably would get less, less hot if it was plastic. Uh, um, so interestingly enough, so aluminum is a really good conductor of mm-hmm. heat. So you're probably warming your intake charge more with a hot intake, man- metal intake manifold than you are with a hot plastic intake manifold. Cause I'm pretty sure the stock one's plastic.
0: Um, um, yeah. Not on my car, right? but on some of them they were. Yeah. Oh really?
1: Interesting. Um so so there in that case, like the problem you have isn't basically like the heat from the exhaust that's cooking your intake mm-hmm. manifold. It's the heat from the radiator that's cooking your intake manifold. And also from the engine and just hot parts right, right. around there. But dominantly it's from the radiator. Okay. Um what and this is probably why it almost doesn't matter the ambient air temperature, your intake manifold will still be yes. hot because Air coming out of the radiator is gonna be hot. Now, if you're not flogging the crap out of the car, your intake manifold will stay nice and cool mm-hmm. because the amount of the air, like say you're only running at twenty-five percent throttle all the time. Okay, um, you're gonna be slow, but you're you won't cook your intake manifold. <laughs> um, but like, but in effect, like only a quarter of the amount of heat is going into the air coming out of the radiator. So now instead of going from a hundred degrees coming going in and two forty coming out. It'll be 100 degrees going in and like 140, 160. Okay. So it'll be a lot cooler air. And thus the amount of air going into the engine is going to be also you know, cooler. So, um, so there, there's a couple of things you can do. Um, one is get the heat out of the engine bay. Okay. Preferably not via the intake manifold. Okay. So this is why some kind of weird things that you always see like, um, I've seen people put like hood vents on a car and have them face the wrong way. Okay. Okay. So you have to look at like air likes to flow from high pressure regions to low pressure regions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, a good way to think about this is like, uh, if you ever, if you ever seen it's on usually on older muscle cars where they had what it was called cowl induction, right. Okay, so this was it looks like, you know, a big thing on top of the hood, but the inlet was back. It was back by the windshield. It wasn't in the front where you'd think it would be. It was this big thing coming up. And the reason why is when the air comes over the hood and makes that corner by the windshield, it builds up there. So there's actually a high pressure region right at the base of the windshield. And that sucks in. So like you're basically feet. It's the same as like a ram air kind of thing, but going the other way. Okay. and the idea was like, well, you, you get drag every time you move, make air change direction. So why not just use that high pressure air that created the drag and use it to get more air into the engine? So that's one way of doing it. But what that means is, if you see people with like extractor vents on the hood that are close to the windshield, they're not working. Like they're not they're not doing what they need right to right. do. <laughs> like because the air will go in because the engine bay is actually a region of low pressure. Mm-hmm. OK, because the air has to squeak through the radiator and anytime time it, remember, it goes from high pressure to low pressure. So the air inside the engine bay is going to be cooler or um, less dense and, than the air outside mm-hmm. of it. OK, which is why the air flows out of the engine bay underneath the car and also into the wheel wells in a lot of cases. Because so basically anytime time like you make an air change direction, it's going to be, you know, higher pressure on the inside of that corner and lower on the outside of the corner as a kind of way to to think about as the air moves. So what you want to extract air from the engine bay, a lot of way, one way to do that is basically a reverse facing scoop at the front of like right behind the radiator at the front of the hood. Okay. Okay. So like, because if you have like a reverse facing scoop, it's a region of even lower pressure and it'll suck air out of the scoop. Mm -hmm. Okay. Kind of the opposite way you would want it to, if you were doing like a Ram air thing. Um, The other thing is to actually one, so that's one way to get more air out from the engine bay. Because if you think about it, if you double the amount of airflow through the radiator, okay, the air will be, the change in temperature will be half as much. Okay. Okay. So, which means that the air hitting your intake manifold will also be half as, well, it'll go from like 100 to 160 instead of from 100 to 220. Okay. Okay. So, that's a good thing to do. There's two way, There's two really easy ways to do that. Okay. One is cut a hole in the hood with a reverse facing scoop. Because if it's not reverse facing, you'll get air going in, which will dilute the hot air. But you want the hot air to leave. You want more air through the radiator. So the overall air is less hot. Because what you're having right now is think of the air not moving very well. Like in that torturous area between the radiator and the engine, there's pipes. There's all kinds of stuff right. in the air. The air's not moving very fast. It's kind of. Floating around. Okay. Meaning the intake manifold is sitting in a sea of hot air. Like you want to either blow cold air into that area or get that hot air out as fast as possible so that the overall temperature decreases. Yeah. So the other way is uh, a front air dam. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at a lot of stock vehicles, they will have a vertical air dam sticking down from under the front lip. Mm -hmm. That is so they don't overheat. Okay. What that does is that. Air dam in the same way like a gurney flap on a wing does, it basically makes a low pressure region behind it so that the air gets sucked out the bottom of the car. Okay. Okay. So, um, but you probably have a pretty extended front splitter, I think, on your car. It's not a big, it's not really a big
0: splitter because of the rules for me. I do have a good air dam. Uh, what I was going to do, I have hood louvers in the front. Um, we measured the pressure zones on the hood in six inch squares. I found the best place to put it. So I put it there. Um, cool. One of the big things for me was I need
1: like the highest pressure area, or the lowest
0: pressure. I area? think it's the highest pressure area on the hood.
1: So flow into the lubbers? no,
0: out of the louvers. So it must've been the low pressure area of the hood. Okay. <clears throat> but what I'm going to do is put a, like a gurney on the front to help create that swirl because I don't think it's being super Mm -hmm. efficient right now. Um, So that's one thing I'm going to do to help. The other thing is you
1: you could stick a like backwards pointing NACA duct. Oh, okay. Um, So, you know what NACA duct Mm -hmm. like the hourglass shape. Um, So NACA ducts are really good at pulling in boundary layer flow or exhausting boundary layer flow. Like the, if you have a, of, lam- like, laminar flow over the hood, which it is before it gets tripped. So, at the near the front of the hood is an ideal place for nacoducks, either inlet ones or exhaust ones, depending which way they're mm-hmm. facing. Okay. Um, so reverse facing nacoducks will actually add a significant amount of extraction without adding additional drag, like a gurney. Okay. Same with a reverse scoop as opposed to, a, like a gurney vertical, like,
0: yeah. It's like a quarter-inch gurney flap I think I'm going to add just to try to to help accelerate things in the front there and get it to start pulling out of the hood. Uh, The other thing is Honda was dumb, and they routed a coolant line through my intake manifold. So I'm going to loop that, and I don't know why. It's not needed, but...
1: Uh they usually do that to increase fuel atomization to basically make the in cold start mm-hmm. to make the intake air temperature higher quicker. Right.
0: So I don't need that. I don't have that problem. You don't so, need that. <laughs> and then, then I just, I literally, while we're on the podcast, uh, the UPS just showed up to drop off my metal um, box pan brake and uh, bead roller. So, I, cause I'm going to duct from like the air dam opening area to the radiator, um, just to help make the air getting to the radiator efficient. And then I'm on a plastic end tank, aluminum, uh, radiator right now. It's the factory one says Honda on it, like whatever. And I have a full aluminum, um, radiator, which, you know, it's only single row, but the factory one was only single row. And as far as I'm concerned, I need, I need surface area, not volume. So
1: yes and no. Okay. Um, so a thing there, one thing to look at is kind of, um, measure the pressure. I mean, if you were measuring pressure on your hood, you probably have, you know, manometer kind of thing. Like what do you want to do is measure the pressure kind of before and after the radiator, is a good thing to, to look at here because for most cases you're in your radiator inlet for, especially for racing, your radiator inlet is too big. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's like wrongly sized. Okay. Um, in effect, like when you try and ram a lot of air through radiator, the pressure drop gets much higher. Um, so one of the things is kind of, you want the optimized duct size, Duct size. Mm-hmm. So, um, on this, and it's actually a lot smaller than you might think. Like, um, so think back to my like DSM days. So everyone's, well, every people in our age has seen like, you know, the late nineties generation two Mitsubishi Eclipse, like big fish, you know, catfish mouth looking car. Okay. When I was running that on the track, um, the modified, uh, intake that I was doing for radiator and never mind the car was making, I was aiming for about six, 700 horsepower at the time. I was cutting the intake of the radiator down by a factor of three. It was basically like a two inch tall strip for the radiator. Okay. At that point. Um, Because what you want to do is you want to take a small amount of high speed air, expand it so that it gets to the whole radiator Mm -hmm. and then have it flow through Mm -hmm. the radiator at relatively low speed. Okay. Whereas you try and just have a bunch of it and just ramming into it the air doesn't have enough pressure to force that amount of air through it. So you actually get spillover, right. meaning the air like, well, try and get into the mouth. But instead, it's kind of stacking up and it'll get blown up over the top, meaning it'll yeah, be highly turbulent. It, it
0: takes the path of least resistance. That's why they CFD, because it fluid does the same thing. Water yeah. does the same thing. So, yeah. So, Ex- so exactly. that's the plan. I even, this car has a upper... It has an open grill and a lower radiator opening and i'm gonna i'm gonna do a some carbon work I hope to block off that upper uh grill area yeah Mouth. just so it's not dead cool. air <clears throat> rattling against where the duct will be The duct will be in the way anyway so
1: yeah um and then also do like you know tufts or yarn or however you want to mm-hmm. do it to make sure that because if you can fill that in a little bit. You want to make sure that you can maintain that consistent laminar flow up over the front lip of the hood so that your, any, any aerodynamics or vents or whatever you do on the top of the hood don't get disturbed by. Right, right. Thing. Yeah. So definitely okay. going to do that too. So um, um, the other thing is if you're making sheet metal stuff is remember that the amount of airflow through the radiator isn't all that much like on a grand scheme of things is duct it down and out like if you have you know your intake manifold come out of the radiator and kind of do a thing like that you know so the air it's not blowing directly on the intake manifold um yeah i
0: mean i I have a heat shield setup that i'm doing in carbon because i'm a nerd and it doesn't absorb a lot of stuff you know (laughs) so
1: (laughs) we'll still get hot it just it, it won't matter as long as it doesn't melt um but yeah, then, and also, um, the other thing that's a, a good thing, I don't know how much you're allowed is because the air is going to have to go mm-hmm. somewhere. Ideally, what you would almost want to do if you were trying to like deal with this kind of thing is try and get the air to go down and out the sides, like the radiator air, like wheel wells are a good spot to put it. Yeah, we do um, if you can get out the side.
0: In theory. I can duct my radiator wherever I want. I cannot ventilate my wheel wells, though. Wheel wells? So, yeah. And I don't want to use that air to point at my... Well, I don't know. I'd have to measure the temperature, I guess, to to then point it at my brakes. On your brakes? But...
1: That won't matter. So, again, okay, this is actually a good thing. Um, So brakes are turning that the energy of the kinetic energy of the car that you just put all you know you turn gasoline into mechanical energy use that to accelerate your car now it's got a whole bunch of kinetic energy and the brakes are turning that back into heat right and then radiating it out mm-hmm. okay the if the if the air hitting your brakes is 200 degrees instead of 100 degrees it ain't gonna matter a lick to the fed fa- because your brakes are 800 to a thousand degrees right. <laughs> like it's just I mean, they see it as a cold breath of fresh air <laughs> at that point. Um, and also that, like, um, it's 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 not. It won't make a lick of difference. Like, you know, the big thing with, like, cold air ducting for brakes is just to get more air. So, like, when you see, like, brake ducting, you know, to, like, you know, front inlets on stuff on a car, mm-hmm. it isn't to get cold to the brakes. It's to get air to the brakes. Right. OK, so you're basically relying on like the ram air flowing through that tube to just blow air onto the brakes. Like if you I mean, as long as you're not directing exhaust at the brakes, like anything's better than just it sitting there. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. OK, um, in terms of like radiator air going there. The big thing is like, you know, if you're if you're going to if you can duck the radiator somewhere, if you're putting it down If you're getting it out the bottom of the car, okay, then that should work. Um, But then you want to, your intake manifold to get air from somewhere else. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, This can be another duct. Like as long as, if the radiator isn't directly blowing onto the intake manifold, it's not going to require that much air to keep the air air around the intake manifold. Cool. Like you don't need, if, if there's no air in and out, if there isn't this, you know, jet of hot air blowing onto it and you have that shielded off, it doesn't take much ambient air to just make that normal temperature. Okay. Like a lot better temperature. Um, The other thing you could do is just insulate the crap out of your intake
2: manifold. Like I I see
1: people like header wrap all the time. And that's great. That actually like a well designed, like you might get, you know, really insulating a header and exhaust system. You might get maybe one or 2% more power out of the car just due to better flow. Ironically, however, I very rarely see people insulate their intake manifolds. At which point, like, let's put it this way: um, if your intake, say the air going through your intake manifold got heated up to 160 degrees, and in, in, instead of from 100 degrees, okay, mm-hmm. so like, just the intake manifold warmed the air by 60 degrees, okay, that would mean that that's about a five to eight percent hit on power. There's that. Okay. Okay. So whereas the only way that heat's going into the intake manifold is from the outside, okay? So if you reduce the heat flow into the into that intake manifold so that the amount of heat was, it only heated it to 130 instead of 160, you just gain back 2 to 3% power, like, just like that. So what's really funny is, like, go around next time you're into pits and stuff like that, you'll see everyone and their mom will insulate headers and stuff like that. And they'll have these nice, pretty aluminum intake manifolds just hanging out there getting hot. And it's like, you're putting cold air down the middle of it. You have a cold air intake. You just like, and then you're just like, you're like cold air on the inside and super hot air on the outside. Yeah, yeah. You know, you might like, you might as well just have a non-cold air intake and just suck in 100 degree air and you're probably just fine. <laughs> like, So it's, it's really fun. So like definitely I was going to say is like, just insulate the crap out of the intake manifold.
0: Yeah, I and- I'm looking at a couple products to do that cuz I'm going to have to pull it anyway cuz I'm going to do uh one of those uh replaceable isolator up. um manifold gaskets, the intake manifold gaskets. Ah. So, I'm going to do that and then while it's off <clears throat> there's this it's a a high heat bonded corrugated aluminy kind of thing that you can cut shape and put on um and then splice together so
1: oh okay yeah um, I was gonna say just header wrap would probably work but um like anything you can do and there's usually a lot of room around intake runners and stuff like that just shove stuff around there just insulate the crap out of it okay like it, it will help and then same with like any inlet ducting mm-hmm. like your cold air in t- inlet ducting Basically, insulate the crap out of that. Um, the other, and that's going to buy you more than anything else. Um, because now that it'll be cooled, that intake manifold will be, trans. there will be a lot less heat going into it, meaning there will be a lot less, remember, heat goes from hot to cold. So there will be a lot less heat going into it from the ambient airstream around it, even if you didn't do any of your radiator ducting. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot less heat going from the intake manifold into the intake track. Okay. Uh, yeah. Insulate it. And also, next time you're going around the pits, just look. You'll no, see. No. will always be wrapped, and intakes will never be wrapped. Never wrapped. And it's never.
0: Just, They're usually shiny uh, aluminum. They like polish them and stuff. They have a good time. Um.
1: Which is. So the other thing. Okay. So one of the let's let's bring it back to thermodynamics. Okay. So heat moves three different ways. Okay. Conduction, convection, and radiation. Conduction is obvious. You know, heat goes from hot to cold thing. If you're you're holding an ice cube. The heat's going from your hand into the ice cube. Conduction. It's solid surfaces in, con- in you know, contact with each other. That part's easy. So like when you talked about like your thermal isolator gasket mm-hmm. or, you know, usually they're like a phenolic standoff kind of thing. Right. Between the engine, between the head and intake manifold. Um, that's a, a good idea. Like a lot of heat can be moved by conduction, especially, you know, aluminum is very thermally conductive. Um you can tell this where if you ever have like a piece of aluminum, like aluminum TIG rod or something like that, hold onto it and put it on an ice cube. And like the heat will come out of your hand, like super efficiently into the ice cube. Like you can cut through it. Like if you've ever seen the like as seen on TV, like defrosting thing, like right. you can put meat on this and it defrosts the meat. in like, yeah. ten, it's just a freaking aluminum plate. That's all yeah, it is. Yeah. It's an aluminum plate. If, <laughs> like, you, if you bought a you know, little cookie sheet, it's the same some, thing. Yeah. Like, you know, go buy some 6061 from McMaster. You're good to go. Yeah. Like, you know, like clean the oil off. You're done. Um, so isolating, you know, the aluminum head from the aluminum intake manifold, cause the head's going to be, it's got exhaust gas in it. It's got hot water in it. The heads, whatever your coolant temperature is or hotter. Okay. So doing that helps a bunch. Um, Uh, And then so convection. So this is whenever you have air or water or any fluid moving over a surface that gets the heat moves out of it more rapidly. Um, We think about this as like blowing on food. Your food is just sitting there. If the air isn't moving around it, it's just conducting into air. And air is a poor conductor of heat. However, if you move the air over it now, a lot more heat can be extracted because it's like, you know, new air blowing over it all the time. Mm -hmm. The last thing is radiation. Okay. So this isn't radiation like nuclear. This is the equivalent of a heat lamp. So like, if you stand in front of a heat lamp and you feel the heat on your face, Mm -hmm. you're actually feeling infrared radiation. Everything emits Some amount of infrared radiation. This is why, like, you know, if you see, like, you know, thermal cameras on stuff like that, what you're actually seeing is the infrared light emitted by anything that's warm. Right now. So you'll see like coatings, like high emissivity coatings for things. If you've ever seen that term where it'll be like high E coating for this, like muffler paint is a good example of this, where what that does is you want to that maximizes the amount of heat that can be emitted by radiation. As soon as you're above a few hundred degrees mm-hmm. in air, radiation actually can put out more heat than conduction or than convection. Okay. okay. So this is why like, um, why those like heat lamp, you know, radiative heaters work so well is if you think about it, there's they're in air, but they're all the heat is coming out via the radiation part. The air flowing over it is it, it's not heating the room. It's heating you kind of thing. Okay. So whenever you want to get heat, into or out of something like you have to look at like all those different aspects conduction convection radiation so in your case with your intake manifold like that isolator gasket you're eliminating the conduction part you're basically keeping the thing you want cold separate physically separate from the thing you want hot Okay. okay we already talked about the convection part like we don't want hot air blowing onto it so you're ducting or if you insulate it that's a way to keep the hot air from hitting it directly The last piece of it is radiation, okay? Mm -hmm. In general, with radiation is, again, heat goes from hot to cold always. So if you want something to not absorb a lot of radiation, a lot of thermal radiation, Mm -hmm. you definitely don't want it to be black, okay? okay? Now, but, like, you also, a lot of times, don't want it to be shiny either, okay? Mm -hmm. Like like a good example of this is if you've ever like sat on a seatbelt that was sitting in a sunlit car. Correct. Okay. And it burns your ass because shiny things, they don't absorb a lot of light. I mean, think about it. They're reflective. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they really, really don't emit a lot of thermal energy. Okay. Um, so shiny things basically like look hot. In fact, um, so, so, I do a lot of long range shooting stuff. Yep. Um, uh, And one of the things, I also have like thermal scopes and stuff like that. The way you sight in a thermal scope is you use aluminum foil. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because aluminum foil will just be hotter than the target. So you can easily see aluminum foil Mm -hmm. on it. So that's one way to do it. So that, that shiny aluminum intake manifold is likely absorbing a lot of radiated heat from the engine and everything else around it. OK, the ideal what you want is white. OK, white is the coolest color from a radiation perspective, because if you think about it, white is pretty reflective, like light bounces off of it. That's why it looks white. OK, but from an infrared perspective, it's very emit- emitting. Mm-hmm. OK, like it emits a lot of heat um, at the temperatures in a car. It doesn't matter all that much. You just want to increase the emissivity. So like what you really don't want is you don't want it to be shiny. OK, everything else will make it cooler. Yep. Black, white, white is probably better, but black or white. Um, this is why, like, if you ever see like advertisements for, you know, ceramic coating, like high emissivity ceramic coatings for headers and stuff like that. Yep. Um, yep. Some of them will be black, some of them will be white, like white is actually better. Um, but you'll see people they are like, well, isn't black better for blah, 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 blah. And when it comes to infrared, white and black are the same thing like they're both the, they're the same they're both equally dark uh when it comes to to that so um yeah so shiny intake manifold worse in every possible way like yeah, from yeah. a from a thermal perspective <clears throat> so, but
0: it gets those show car anyway. points Be smart
1: for instagram oh yeah that's that definitely makes you faster yeah <laughs> um it's like sticker horsepower um, yeah so um I think you got like a good a good path forward on uh on the on the intake side of things like I mean move, like move heat around um do you have like a bunch of like remote read thermometers like you know cheapy ones
0: No I don't I probably should get my hands
1: on some um get like on Amazon it'll be 10 15 bucks they're like you know little temperature probe they're cheap cuz it's not all that hot right. okay and worst case you could put some wrap around it or whatever like you just need something to read up to like, you know, 200 degrees Fahrenheit. They'll come with like a two, three meter cord, Mm -hmm. like a little LCD thing or whatever, like put them in there. They're battery powered, stick a row of them. Like if you don't, if the cord's not long enough to get into the, you know, cockpit, like, you know, right along there, the bottom of your hood and just like, see what it looks like, you know, you know, or data log it if you're that dorky, but you know,
0: you probably, yeah, I don't, Uh, I would be, but I'm not allowed to have that kind of data. Uh, you
1: know, can you have a thermometer display?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I I would data log yeah. things. Um, I guess I could buy how and do it, but
1: um. Oh no, I'm I'm saying just easier. Buy like you know freaking Arduino and do it that way. And
0: okay, you know, yeah.
1: Like, like Google like how to log temperature with Arduino, and you know follow instructions on like a twenty dollar thing, and you know um that are just like and if you want after this i can say it. like what i use is there's um you can get like a two pack for 20 bucks it's like a little like one by two inch lcd screen mm-hmm. and like a te- metal temperature probe on like a two three meter cord okay for a lot of times like people use them for a variety of different random crap um they also like they make them on for like aquariums but they also a lot of times will make them hot enough they'll run hot enough to reuse in an oven Okay. Like there'll be like a silicone cord and stuff like that, in which case, and then just put it, if you can't easily run the probe through like the firewall, you could just put them at like the base of your windshield on the outside, Mm you know, tape them down or something and just look at it that way. And just, you know, temperature, like, you know, you'll let you, you probably can find out your intake air temperature if you're like can logging, um, which are you allowed to like, are you, can you do an OBD2 logger? No,
0: not technically because I have to, well, I would have to upgrade my ECU to do it. That's it. That's the really? issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, Why? The ECU setup that I have right now, I have to have plugged in because we have a rule that says I have to be logging through that. But it's a
1: stock ECU, right?
0: Yeah, but it's not logging that, I don't think. It might be.
1: Get um uh, get an OBD2 like plug-in logger. Like you know, like the like an OBD two diagnostic reader mm-hmm. that you get for I, I assume, like kind of thing that'll like if the app logs that'll log intake air temperature.
0: Okay, I will have to look into
1: it. It's one, it'll it'll be one of um because Honda La- I mean it's probably changed but um does Honda use a mass air sensor or uh, like a carbon vortex like airflow? No, it's mass air, air. I think. Sensors, you know? And it'll still read intake air temperature because they'll have a, they'll have a, an ignition retard curve for that. Um, but yeah, it'll have intake air temperature as one of the things on it. So if you can do OBD two log, you can log it. Okay. Oh, I mean, and it's just a plug.
0: I can just, I can do those logs during my practice days, not necessarily race weekends. So.
1: Oh yeah. But yeah. So yeah, definitely like, and you know, read the, like have a temperature probe right next to the intake manifold
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the outside. And then compare that to your intake air temperature. And I bet you like the air temperature around the intake manifold will surprise you. Like that's why it's hot. Okay. So um, it's because of the radiator. Um, and then so that way you can like, you know, quantitatively look at like your ducting and stuff like that and how that all changes. Okay. It. Yeah. I, I do appreciate like doing it in carbon fiber because, you know, cool. Like as opposed to like
0: aluminum. Yeah, I do a lot of stuff in carbon. I, I would do. I appreciate I would do my, uh my buddy did his uh, radiator ducting in carbon, but sometimes we bump draft ish intentionally and unintentionally. And I figured I'd want something to beat out if I had to, if it, we yeah, bumped too hard. Probably. So,
1: so do you like, to, is it like a wet layup or? yeah, I'm going to do a wet like lay on my, uh, carbon.
0: I'll do a wet lay on my nice. grill. And then he did a wet lay on his, uh, on his ducting. So, um, that's devotion. Yeah. So we're running a little over an hour, okay, but I had cool. one question that I want. I definitely wanted to cover. Not for me. And it it has to deal with uh, brake sizing, like rotor sizing and okay. heat dissipation. Um, mostly for my buddy. He just built a TSX. A newer TSX with a J-Series swap. He's got to weigh like 3,000 pounds. He's running big tires, you know, like 295 square on it, I think.
1: Wait, a a what swap into a TSX?
0: A J-Series, the V6 from like a Ridgeline.
1: Oh, okay. Like, okay, sure. Does that, is it, oh, okay. Yes. Is, Is that a transverse motor?
0: Uh yes, it comes. Yes, they make trans. There's a J series transverse. Yes, it is
1: for what
0: Uh for the Ridgeline? Uh, Accords, I think. Yeah, the V6 Accords. Uh, oh yeah,
1: okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, that's gonna be interesting. Well, it's okay, it's very so-
0: interesting, and it's lunatic fast, right? Even at three thousand pounds, like it's lunatic fast. Un- yeah, stock engine, unbuilt. Uh, lunatic fast, but he destroys rotors he's destroying his brake yeah his rotors are there. destroyed um and they're they're I mean, he's in
1: stock right now or no 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 oh.
0: he bought some from oh yeah from a company with racing and brakes in the name and they sold him a kit and i think he made 3 laps before he popped that rotor it's a two piece so uh uh, then he swapped from two piece because um, he thought. Well,
1: there's two companies. Is it is it blue or red?
0: It's it's neither. <laughs> it's it's a extra special side company. Um,
1: oh.
0: I, I won't I won't throw them under the bus because
1: okay that's fine um, okay anyway um, so
0: he went to the solid rotor so it was the rotor he he had the whole thing built so he could run like 350 no 370z stock rotors or something like that some bigger larger rotor so from a car that took a brembo so from the red group uh that had an oversized single and i think that oversized single made it one day at the track before it popped um catastrophic now
1: is he frying calipers or rotors
0: rotors they are destroying themselves
1: like warping or no, they, like what what is what is
0: okay so he looks at them before he goes out there's no major cracks yeah. there's only very minute you know temperature cracks the hair very very small hairlines, yeah. right and nothing protruding okay. to the side and then at some point in the afternoon session shortly in the afternoon session a huge great gaping crack just occurs and just like on his two piece, his two piece like split. And so we thought that he thought the two piece was a little too small and with two different uh metals.
1: And that's not I wouldn't say. So um remember that whenever it's if it's a decent two piece, mm-hmm. like a not, you know, T Move like Temu like two piece kind of thing, like the actual um rotor, the connections on it will float. Right. Um so that the the hat basically the hat will allow torque, but it'll allow radial expansion.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um so the differential on that is likely gonna be less bad from a stress perspective than an actual single piece road. Okay. In terms of uh thermally induced stresses. So that's good um, to know. Okay. So I've fried some brakes, okay? Um, and I can name names on this one because um, they actually were decent about it. Um, so way back when I was doing a lot of track days in my Audi, so this was a 4,000-pound car. I was making 400 and change horsepower at the time. And um, I was frying because I was doing like Watkins Glen, which is wonderful for high-horsepower cars that are really heavy because you can get going really, really, really fast. And then you have the bus stop and, you're bra- and all of a sudden you're going from, you know, 140, 160 to... Sixty, right? And doing that repeatedly, and you will fry stuff. Um, so at the time, I was running StopTechs mm-hmm. on there. Um, I actually have worked with them a bunch. I would work with them on a bunch on my D- on my DSM as well. Um, so I warped a set of their rotors. Okay, and I was like, yeah, these are warped, and like I did everything right. Like you know, I didn't like come into the pits and just sit there with the brakes on or anything weird like that. Um, and So they actually had me, they FedExed me a new set of rotors like gratis. Mm -hmm. And as long as I sent them back, the ones I broke, because they're like, we have no idea how the hell you did this, but like, we're going to find out. Um, And one of the things was, it was just like, it was, it was the right size kit for this, but it was a very specific situation where the brakes were relatively cold. Cause like, if you've ever been to Watkins Glen, like through the S's and everything, basically you're not on the brakes for quite a while. Okay. OK, and so your brakes are going to be nice and cool, and then they're going to go from very cold to very, very hot at the bus stop. OK, and that's that spike was what was killing them um, and actually causing a warp was they were a lot of heat going into it. One thing that's characteristic, and I assume like your buddy isn't doing this, but like newbies will tend to fry brakes because they'll come to the pits and not and leave the brakes on. Yeah. Um, right. Like you never you'll ne- you never want to be at zero speed with hot brakes and the brake pedal depressed. Like you will warp that'll actually warp rotors and cause cracking mm-hmm. because you'll different you'll heat brakes are really designed to be heated all the same because I mean you think about it if it's spinning through the brake it's all getting hot but it's getting hot uniformly whereas if you have like hot brake pads on rotor it's going to get really hot there and cold everywhere else and that'll crack them like that. So if you ever see brake rotors where like it's like the moon, it's like a chunk taken out of it from the side, that's probably what happened um because basically they heated that section and it stress cracked around the side of it. Um, in this case, like is that what you like is there a weird is it a weird pad compound thing? like it could be a variety of things. Yeah, um, he's working on it. I just wanted he to
0: see like what kind of <clears throat> thermodynamic stuff, like, so you talked about okay. a couple minutes ago going from too cold to too hot. And I, I think that's absolutely the case. And it's in the past on my first car, I think it caused some issues when I actually ducted my brakes. Cause you can duct your brakes and not actually need them to be ducted. Because there is a thermal yep. operating zone for your brakes. And if they're happy in there and then you overcool them, but there are an aggressive pad that will take heat right away, you'll start to cause problems. And and so I just wanted yep. to see what type of thermodynamic issues that okay. may be
1: occurring. Oh yeah. So I mean brakes are like everything else. You're, you know, you're you're heating them up and then you have to get rid of the heat. Okay. Um Brakes are and brakes and brake fluids is always like it's always a fun topic. Like, one of the big issues is brakes are always neglected. Like, I would say suspension is neglected most by newbies in mm-hmm. racing, um, followed by brakes because everyone likes to make power and they can understand that. But, like, it's brake, you know, suspension is the thing that wins races, and then brakes are you need you. Uh, BMW used to have a slogan that the brakes need to be at least as powerful as the engine, <laughs> like, or more preferably. <laughs> um, so, but they're one of the most thermally stressful parts of a car, especially depending upon the circuit, like in autocross, for instance, where you have lots of braking close together, not a lot of time in between them and the overall time period is low. Okay. Your brakes are never going to get that hot. Like you're never going that fast you're not putting a lot of heat into the brakes right. It's kind of what they're designed to do anyway. If it's a street car, like bumper to bumper traffic, you know, you're going from 10 to 15 or you know, 10 to zero, 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 but not getting a lot of airflow. That's what they're designed for. Um, circuits where there's like a lot of distance and then hard braking are the most abrupt or the most difficult on brakes because they have to work when they're both cold right at the beginning and hot. OK, so like you'll pick different pad compounds and stuff like that to run at different temperatures. Um, so it's all really like you, you set it perfectly yourself where it was, you know, you have like the zone that they're happy at. OK, now if you're getting like race pads, they're going to be they're going to want to run hot because the assumption is under most racing, you never really get a chance to cool the brakes down that much. Um, I brought up Watkins because that's a perfect example. Uh, Le Mans is another super example of this as a problem where you have the on straight, where it's like you're going for a long ass time and then right. you have to stop. Like your brakes are cold. OK, going into that. So a lot of times they will run less ducting just so they can keep the temperature in, especially if it's carbon carbon brakes, because those will not work when they're cold. So you will need less cooling just so they can keep you can keep the temperature in them for those kinds of circuits now for most of the circuits are in the mid-atlantic there's i mean maybe one of the configurations of eir you might have this but not really like you're there's enough breaking around where you're going to keep a lot of good temperature in it um one way to test this um is I mean, if you really wanted to, you could have someone watch you come in, like come out of a braking zone with a thermal camera and see how hot the brakes were or going into the, going into a zone, like Mm -hmm. thermal, like a FLIR one is a couple hundred bucks, put it on a phone, video it, going in, you'll be able to see how hot the brakes were coming in. That's one way to do it. Um, so, and like see if they're in their happy range, like you'll know what turns your brakes feel best at. So, if you, you did this, you know, get, 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 your, get your wife to video it or something like, you know, you'll be able to like see like, okay, this turn, the brakes felt really good in this braking zone and they were hot coming in. So like, I want them to be hot and they weren't that bad coming out. Like I didn't get any fade or anything like that. So you want to keep them in the right range. Um, but in terms of managing the temperature, it's just more or less airflow. Okay. Like brakes, in almost every case, are running, especially when you're racing, too hot, Mm -hmm. okay, and people will pick different brake pads, people will spend enormous amounts of money on brake fluid that's somehow magic and doesn't boil or blah, 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 um, another interesting anecdote that'll follow up on this of, like, what everyone does wrong on brake fluid, um, but, but they won't, like, actually be determining if like that is the appropriate thing like if you're ducting the hell out of your brakes and they're running cool you may want to run a less high temperature pad Mm -hmm. just so that because they're never getting up to temperature Um, another thing people will do is they'll direct depending upon the actual brake disc layout they'll direct the airflow wrong like um, I've seen this where there's like Oh, here's your brake shroud for your, you know, like vented disc brakes. So, so, you know, you look at them from the side and it looks like a turbine kind of thing. And they'll make a shroud that goes on your upright and it'll direct the brake duct at the disc of the brake. Right. Okay. Like straight like at the shiny part. And I'm like, no, for that, what you actually want is that's an air pump. Okay. You want to direct the air at the hub so that the brake disc spinning directs the air outward. It's flowing through the brake disc, but you'll see people with ventilated brakes and they'll have a brake duct that's blowing the air at the shiny part. And I'm like, wow, that's a complete waste of your brake duct. Like it, you want to put it into the hub. Kind yes.
0: Of <clears throat> um, and your bearings will last longer and thank you for it. You know.
1: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause, and that's the other thing of like, you know, when I was talking about like radiative heat transfer, your brakes are glowing. Okay. And that when something is glowing red hot, the amount of heat that can be just transported to the next surface is like putting a blowtorch on it. Okay. So when people cook wheel bearings and racing, like one of the dominant reasons for that is they're right next to the brakes. The brakes are now glowing red hot, but there's no airflow there. So like right. get it into the middle. If you have ventilated discs, that's one thing. Um, Another big thing. Um, so just manage your airflow there. The other thing is look at wheels. A lot of times wheels will overly block air flow. Um, so you won't kind of want to run big brakes. Like people will always try and get like the biggest brakes I can fit inside the wheel. And it's like, okay, well, the air has to leave the brake disc and you know, it'll be really close and like, or there'll be other features of the upright that prevent airflow or from the brake disc leaving the wheel. Um, and F1 now they're doing just crazy shit of airflow through hub and all kinds of neat stuff, um, in terms of like, you know, wheels that pump air through brakes and, you know, the, the axles are like hollow so they can blow air through it. It's just crazy. I love it. Um, brake fluid thing. Um, interesting thing. Like, um, how often do you in a racing season, how often do you swap brake fluid?
0: Uh, once a, once a year, once a year,
1: what do you use for brake fluid?
0: Uh, the Castrol, <laughs> not sponsored, Castrol, uh, whatever the racing fluid is,
1: like SRF or whatever, whatever yeah. their racing stuff is. Yep, okay. So, w- brake fluid, I don't know if like, I don't know if you know this, like, um, that brake fluid will have a wet, what they call a wet boiling point and a dry boiling point for yep. brake fluid. I assume you okay. So all the racing brake fluid has, like, really high. It'll be, like, 600-degree, like, dry boiling point, and it'll be, like, 550-degree wet boiling point and stuff like that, okay? So the reason why that is is as soon as you get any water in brake fluid, which is strongly hydro- hygroscopic that absorbs water, is the boiling point goes down, okay? So if you have, like, if you're racing and you haven't swapped brake fluid and it's been in the car for a while and you get mushy pedal, that's why. Like, there you go. It's just moisture in your brake fluid, and that's what happens, Okay. If you're changing your brake fluid regularly, like once a year, and then you're just tracking it, you know, kind of thing, like chances are there will never be water in your brake fluid. Like it's just not in there for years. So if you ever get a chance, look up what the dry boiling point of Ford truck brake fluid is.
0: And you know, uh, a lot of people use you, that. I can't remember what it's you called. Know why? Cause it, it has yeah, a really it's just good dry super duty brake fluid.
1: Yeah. Yep. The reason why it does, like I talked, this is from a person at Ford was old people drive big Fords, old people ride brakes, old people maintain cars. Well, though, so they never have wet boiling. They never have wet brake fluid, but they boil the shit out of the dry brake fluid. So, like, you know, your grandma will ride the brakes in her Crown Vic, basically, and heat the crap out of the fluid. But, you know, takes it to, like, the dealer once a year to get all the necessary things done. So, Ford, like, just off the shelf, a lot, like, Super Duty brake fluid will have the same dry boiling point as, like, the, like, $50 a liter, like, crazy stuff. And the wet boiling point just basically doesn't matter for racing. So, anyway, I used to only run the Ford stuff. Castrol. Interesting anecdote, but it's because of old people.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm There were there were several let's call them cheaper brands cuz the castrol stuff is uh, $70 a liter. Something like that.
1: Yeah, inflation.
0: Yeah, yeah, inflation. Yeah, you know. Great. Thanks somebody. Leadership, whatever. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um but the castrol stuff is even dry and wet higher. is still way higher yeah. than everybody else. So we sort of do it. And oh yeah, just, I agree. Yeah. We, we bleed them once a, once a year and life is good. So
1: it's, it's it's good insurance. Like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with, with running higher temperature fluid. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, yeah. the, uh, but yeah, so, um, but yeah, so in terms of like, what's killing your friends brakes, um, that's a weird one. Like, I mean, it's a heavy car, but the discs are big. Like, does is it circuit-dependent,
0: or...? No, it hasn't been. He went even bigger. <clears throat> so they were big in diameter initially, but they seemed a little thin, so he went a little thicker. Um, okay. And more diameter, I believe. So we're just... He's messing around to see if it was just single capacity, because... Uh, he's not running the same pads he used to run. He went to, had to go a little more aggressive because the car is about five or six hundred pounds heavier than his old car. So he went, he bumped up a series, I believe, and then, you know, it. it she's a big girl, man. She's thick, and uh,
1: but also like a lot of that weight was added to the front, so weight balance is going to be different, right?
0: Yeah, but they're, we're all front wheel drive dummies, so, so you know.
1: I know, but it means that like whatever, like your front brakes are going to be—it's just even more. Um, right. hmm. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. Thickness will matter, um, but like the crack, like the cracking is just—that's like that tells me that there's there's something differential happening. So like, I mean, if you want to bring it back to like thermodynamics, like, you know, materials expand and contract with temperature. Like if, if something is heated rapidly, that causes problems, but also if it's heated kind of asymmetrically. Okay. Okay. So like, um, so let's say you, you went to like a larger diameter, single piece rotor. So let's say they're both single piece rotors. It's just one big hunk of steel. Okay. And you went bigger. Well, the pad contact area likely didn't change that much. Like say your caliper, you had the same calipers, just bigger rotor. Okay. Okay. So now like I have this big piece of steel, but the middle is cold and the outside is hot. I'm, and I'm by making the rotor bigger, I'm increasing the area of the cold part and the hot part, the like annual, the annulus is the thick, you know, the, okay, I see the outer saying. diameter. Yeah, is, yeah. So in effect, like now it's like, I'm pinching it more. Like I have a, a even colder part in the middle. Cause it's farther from the hot part. So it's like, you know, almost like a pucker could happen. So you mm-hmm. might get the stress in the metal from the inside to the outside. That difference is going to be a lot more. Okay. And you might get more stress cracking because of that. Um, but I like on two piece, it shouldn't matter that much at mm-hmm. all because the as the rotor gets bigger, the thi- the, the, the and the annular thickness, like the width of the shiny part stays the same like it just bigger middle part, okay because you know two piece rotors you want you're doing trying to reduce weight there. so mm-hmm. you want, the middle is just aluminum. So you want the, the steel part to be the you know minimum width of just the pads effectively. So um, the other thing to look at is, is it four piston calipers or is it a sliding?
0: I, th- I think he was like on four pistons and now he, I was going to look him up while we were talking on Instagram. I think he's, he just bought six piston, a six piston. Make setup.
1: sure. Oh, make sure aware. that
0: he's aware okay. of his piston. Make size. Su- well,
1: <laughs> okay. Well, also make sure that, um, that he's not getting any binding on one side or the other. Mm-hmm. Like if one, if like, if the caliper is miss mal or if the inside or the outside pistons are pushing asymmetrically, you will get heating. You'll get heating on more on one side of the rotor than the other. Okay, And that could very easily cause problems. Um, same with cooling. Like the reason also for blowing the air down the inside out is you're not having a cold. Like if you imagine like the bad kind of duct where it's just blowing on the inside shiny part. Mm-hmm. Well, that that means that the right. side of the disc facing the car is going to be much cooler than the side of the disc facing the outside. And there you're bending it the wrong way kind of thing. So. But that sounds to me like a, like a thermal problem basically of like differential heating in some way. So there you go. It all comes down to heat and where it goes and what you're doing with it. And
0: how to get it out safely. So, all right, Mark. Well,
1: interesting. Yeah.
0: I'll give you some stuff to think about, you know, when you're on the John or something, (laughs) not that you don't have lots of work to do on your own.
1: (laughs) Oh uh, no! I've just been I've just been lately playing a lot of video games. I got enough I got enough thinking to do at work.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, man. Well, I appreciate you coming on. Cool. Um, I'm sure there'll be another version, and we'll try to figure out something. Maybe I'll bring some more real world problems your way, and uh, yeah. we can talk about that.
1: Yeah, if any of your if any of your listeners have like thermal questions of like how does you know bring it on. Like, I don't mind doing this in a, in a month or two, if you've got a bunch of questions and we could talk more.
0: I'd love Okay. To. Do you want them to reach out directly to you?
1: No, I'll reach out through you. I okay. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll be, your, I'll be your filter. <laughs> yeah, make a, make a list, list of questions. If it's like, you know, ne- next thermal episode, you know, the, you know, fan questions. That'd be cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm awesome. Yeah. We'll definitely do that. Uh, thanks for your time. Cause we took a lot of it until next time. Keep working on yourself, keep working on the car and let's get faster.